The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Thank you for tuning in. It is such an honor to look at God's Word with you, one body in Christ. So I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to continue our series through the book of Revelation, and we have an awesome text for us today. So this is going to be Revelation chapter 6. Last week in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll from the throne of God. And uh, here we're going to see in chapter 6, he's going to start to open it. And so we get to see what that brings. This is Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole thing. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 17. This is God's word. Let's listen together. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. And the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb." For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is God's word. We obviously need to pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can be together to study your word. And Lord, as we tackle this tough passage, this rich passage, we pray your Holy Spirit would help us, help each one who listens, Lord, open our minds to you, our hearts to what you're saying, and help me, Lord, please, to teach this faithfully and clearly that it might be a blessing and a help to all your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Have you ever wondered, what am I going to do with all this suffering? I'm gonna take for granted that I don't need to prove to you that both the history of our world and our world today is full of suffering. I don't need to argue that. There's endless varieties of suffering everywhere, political, physical, economic, corporate, community, individual, emotional, relational, spiritual, suffering. Suffering is everywhere and everyone somehow or other will suffer. So what are we to do with all this suffering? How are we to understand it? How are we to process it? People come at this question from different angles, don't they? Some ask, how could there be an all-powerful God who's good and that allows such suffering? Uh, That's a great question. I'd love to talk to you about that sometime. Uh, Let me know if you want that conversation. Um, Christians especially can ask on an individual level, if God loves me and has saved me and is good to me, why does he let me go through these things? It's an important question as well, isn't it? Other Christians might look at suffering in the big picture and say, I've heard this question recently, do you think we're in the end times? They wonder, maybe our time is uniquely the time of tribulation and Christ's return is more imminent than ever. In my research this week, I read about a Christian named Jude who wrote an explanation of the book of Daniel and he concluded that the promised rise of the Antichrist was taking place in his time. And that the end of history was near in his day. And why would he think that? It was because the persecution of his fellow Christians was so incredibly vicious in his place and his time. He concluded it had to be uniquely the end times. After all, what was he to do with all that suffering? It's interesting to realize that our brother Jude, who wrote these things, he wrote them about, would you like to know when? 200 A.D., 1,800 years ago. So what are we to do with all this suffering? How are we to process it? Well, we're continuing our study through the book book of Revelation, and we have reached the infamous chapter 6. And did you see what was in here? Jesus begins opening the first six seals of the scroll. We have uh, the first four unleashing the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We have in seal number five, Christians killed for their faith. And in seal number six, we have what I think is the undoing of the entire world in final judgment. We have our work cut out for us. This is hard stuff. But what do these things mean? When will they come? We'll try to understand that. But did you see one thing that's fairly obvious? What do all six involve somehow? Suffering. All six involve suffering. Do you think that's an an accident or do you think that's on purpose? It's absolutely on purpose. The point of this passage is that God's people would have a proper perspective on their suffering. The original audience of this letter needed this so much. Remember what we went through in those letters to the churches? There's suffering, there's tribulation, there's despair, there's, there's chaos. And just as much in our day, we need it as well, a proper perspective on suffering so that we can live faithfully through it. If you think your suffering is meaningless, you won't make it. If you think your suffering as a Christian is punishment, you won't make it. We need to see the proper perspective on suffering so that we can be faithful through it. So as I was working through this passage, I was thinking, well, I could divide this up and make it several sermons or 
boy, it'd be nice to see the big picture, how it all works together. And I thought, well, why not? Let's do the big picture, how it all works together. So there's six seals. I have six points. Are you ready? Six points. We're going to see how suffering is disappointing. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Number two, we'll see that suffering is speaking. It's communicating to us. It's telling us things. Number three, we're going to see suffering is a tool. There's someone sovereign who uses suffering. Number four, we're going to see that suffering will mature. What I mean by that is it's going to grow and come down hard all at once. Number five, we're going to see suffering will end. Praise God. And number six, all because suffering has been undone. So just one more time, suffering's disappointing, suffering is speaking, suffering's a tool, suffering will mature, suffering will end because suffering has been undone. Point one, suffering is disappointing. Just to let you know ahead of time, lest you start to suffer, this will be the longest point, okay? We're going to look at verses 1 to 7. A little bit of background, verse 1. John says, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. We need to remember background here. Who's the lamb? It's Jesus. And where did he get this scroll with the seven seals? From the very throne of God. What did we learn last week? The scroll represents God's plan for human history. The scroll came from the throne of the living God who is creator of heaven and earth And the truth of this scroll we saw is our only chance at real justice, salvation for God's people, and a happy ending to human history. That's why we saw in our chapter last week, John wept loudly. He wept with despair. Why? Because it didn't seem like there was anyone worthy. There's no one good enough or strong enough to take human history where it needs to go. But as we saw last week, his weeping ends with worship. One is found, the only one, the ultimate one. Jesus alone is worthy. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain, right? He's the promised king who's strong and good enough to take history where it should go. Through his death and resurrection, he has conquered sin and death. He reigns now as king, and history is in his hands. Revelation 1.5 sums it up well. This is Jesus Christ. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the what? The ruler of the kings on earth. So that's background. Jesus, the worthy one, holds history in his hands, and he's the one opening the seals of this scroll. Then shockingly, as chapter 6 begins, Jesus is popping seals, and each one includes suffering. So we're going to begin with the first four, the famous horsemen. Uh, Before we look at them, I want you to notice a couple things. Who is it that's calling for the horsemen each time? It's the living creatures. Who are they? We saw them in chapter 4. These living creatures represent all creation, and their goal before the throne of God is to give worship to the creator who is worthy. They proclaim that the God who created all things is therefore worthy to be worshipped by his creation. That's important. It is they who call forth uh, these four horses. The next thing to see is that each horseman brings some kind of suffering caused in some way by a human refusal to worship the one who made them. This is suffering caused by a human refusal to worship the one who made them. So let's walk walk through them quickly. Uh, The first horse, verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him. He came out conquering and to conquer. What does that mean? Well, an ancient reader would hear white horse, they would see a crown, they would hear a bow, and what we have is political authority of some sort on the march. 
a political of, of authority of some sort dominating, conquering. The original audience would have heard of this bow and it would have reminded them of the, there's this tribe, the Parthians. They had a cavalry armed with bows and they threatened the nearby borders of the Roman Empire. So this first horse signifies the tyrannical governments of the earth always taking power, always wanting more, conquering nations, conquering their own people. This makes sense to us, doesn't it? Isn't history and the present day scarred by tyrannical human governments abusing power? What's the second horse about? We see this in verses three to four. Uh, Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great horse. Did you see what was taken away with this red horse? Peace was taken from the earth. So what we hear, see here is the social fabric coming undone. One group hating and fighting another. The other getting revenge. Peace is gone. Blood is spilt. So we could say this horse signifies enmity, violence among peoples. Third horse found in verses five to six. I heard of the living creature say, come and I look, behold, a black horse. It's right, had a, pair, a rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and so on. Well, what's going on here? We know that scales were used to measure food prices. And they were especially used to ration food during a time of famine. As you study the details here, you realize that the prices mentioned here for food are massively inflated. One commentator said maybe 8 to 16 times the normal price. So imagine, families, all of a sudden your grocery bill going up 10 times next month. I have five kids that would put me under. So this is a picture of famine and economic collapse. Famine and economic collapse. People can't afford the basics. Things are falling apart. Did you notice it's strange at the end of verse 6? It says, don't harm the wine and the oil. Is that because this living creature is like, hey, I got to have my wine and my oil, you know. (laughs) Save that one for me. No. Oil and wine tend to be the fare of the rich. So there's amazing wisdom here. When these troubles come, these economic troubles, you know, sometimes the rich make out just fine. They have the resources to protect themselves. But those who aren't so rich, those are the ones who need the grain and the barley. They're the ones, the poor, they tend to suffer. That takes us to the fourth horse, the pale horse. The pale horse is the one who brings death from the combined effect of all the other horses. Listen to what said in verse eight. I looked and behold a pale horse, its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. The color here is interesting. Pale can really be understood as green. Not the rich green of life, but the pale green of a face that is dying. And what we have here is the summary effect of what all the other horsemen have brought. You think tyrannical governments ever lead to violence? Do you think tyrannical governments and violence ever lead to economic collapse and especially the suffering of the poor? And do you think any of those things can ever add up to lead 
sword with famine and pestilence. We know about pestilence a little bit this year, don't we? And so it all comes together here in just um, death too soon. Premature death. It's broken us. It's killed us. It's interesting, right? Did you see that it's only a fourth of the earth? You know, what are we supposed to do with that? Are we, are we waiting for a little literal horse to come and then specifically only one-fourth of the population dies? I don't think that's the right way to read this. I think these things all work together. And when it says a four, it kills a fourth of the earth, I think we're to see that the effect of these horses and the suffering they bring is broad, but it's limited. It's broad, but it's limited. So for instance, the suffering is not as bad as it could be in every single place in every single way. Not every government is as, is as, tyrann as tyrannical as it could possibly be. Um, it doesn't always get everyone, but there's going to be waves and ebbs and flows where these things are stronger and harsher and other times when there are less. But here's the point. Let's see, the horses signify tyrannical governments, violent unrest, famine, economic collapse, untimely death. So let's just ask, when do you think the four horsemen will invade human history? Maybe a better question is, when have they not been here in human history? And that makes us think. Maybe it's that the, maybe we're to hear that the circumstances of these first four seals and their horses are the, are the norm on earth during the time of tribulation between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his return in victory. This is the norm. Jesus is presented to the Father. He's declared worthy. He opens the seals and what comes? Suffering that we've seen before and yet we've seen it in a new way because who's in control? Who's opening the seals? He is. He is. And this is the norm for the age of tribulation between his ascension and his return. You know, Jesus said this would be the case. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, look at verse three. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And don't we all wanna know that? When are you coming back? And what will it be like right before you come back? And Jesus pretty much never tells you exactly when. Look how he responds in verses six to eight. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are what? That, that next word is really important. See that you are what? Not alarmed. Does anybody feel alarmed at the news of wars and rumors of wars? That's rather alarming. Don't be alarmed, Jesus says. For this, what? Must take place. But it must be the end times. No. What's he saying? The end is not yet. Well, in a way, I guess it is the end times. The entire time between Jesus' ascension and his return is the end times. For nation, verse seven, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. What does he say in verse eight? All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, so we've walked through these seals and these horses. Why did I say my first point, suffering is disappointing? Maybe you heard that and went, obvious. Okay, 
Of course it's disappointing. Well, here's what I mean. I think when we suffer individually, we're always a little surprised. How can this be, we think? And you know, especially for us, we've grown up in America. And we've had maybe less suffering than most folks throughout history. And maybe we get downloaded with the idea that God always takes his people out of suffering. And in chapter 5, we saw the beauty of Jesus and his power and glory, and he's in control. And maybe we were expecting, as he took the scroll, a certain kind of triumphant victory out of suffering, because he's king. And then Jesus himself, the lamb who was slain, opens a bunch of seals of what? Suffering. And so we get hit with a new expectation. And that new expectation could be disappointing. Church, we will have triumphant victory, but it won't be him saving us out of suffering. It will be him saving us through suffering. Through suffering. And so this disappointment maybe we grasp when we face this is important because we have to have this change of expectations. In this time of tribulation between Jesus' ascension and his return, we can expect suffering. We can expect these horses to be riding. We can expect tyrannical governments. We can expect violence and unrest. We can expect economic collapse, pestilence. We can expect death. But we know that Jesus is in control. Remember what John said? What John said as he started this letter? Look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What did John call himself? He's a partner with us. He's sharing something with us. He's in something with us. And what is he in with us? Tribulation. That's what he's in with us. And think of these four horses. Did John know about government tyranny? Yeah, they pulled him out of his home and sent him to an island meant for prisoners because he preached God's word. He knows all about government tyranny, the first horse. Does he know about violence? Didn't he see all of his other disciples killed? Didn't he say, see people hating one another, warring with one another? Sure, he knows the red horse. What about the, uh, the black horse? Famine and economic struggle. Well, I'm just going to guess he wasn't eating sushi every evening during his exile. I'm going to guess the food wasn't always five stars. What about sickness and death? Some commentators think exile in Patmos meant meant slave labor. You know what slave labor brings? Pestilence, sickness, death. John knows he's in it with us, and he says we're in it together. You know, by the way, this doesn't mean that we don't work against suffering. There's an irony here, right? Should we want to stand against tyrannical governments and support just ones? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Should we want to be, blessed are the peacemakers, they're going to be children of God. Should we stand against enmity and unrest and stand for peace? Yeah, we should. Should we work against pestilence? Should we help the poor? When there's economic collapse and famine. Yeah, sure. So in a way, we're against the horses, even though the horses will ride. But our trust is that 
Who's in control of the horses? Jesus holds the reins. Jesus holds the reins. Look at what Paul said, Romans 12, 12. Put this in the pocket of your heart. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in what? Tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So that's the longest point. It's a point about our expectations. Suffering is disappointing, but that actually is good for us because it changes our expectations. We are going to go through suffering and tribulation. In fact, sometimes Christians choose to do so, but we can make it because who's in control? He is. Second thing to see, suffering is speaking. Suffering is speaking. We remember that Revelation is a work of art filled with biblical illusions, right? Pictures from the Old Testament. So you have to read it biblically. You have to know your Old Testament. You have to read it symbolically. These four horses are obviously an allusion to Zechariah 6. There, these are nearly identical horses that go and observe the world in preparation for judgment. Moreover, Revelation 6, 8 sounds just like a passage in Ezekiel 14. Let's remember Revelation 6, 8. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now let's look at Ezekiel 14, 21 to 23. This is what God said to the prophet Ezekiel as he was about to judge rebellious Israel. Ezekiel 14, 21. Thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment. Do you see that? How many? Four. What are they? Sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. These are nearly the same. John is drawing from Ezekiel. Let's continue that passage in Ezekiel. Look at verses 22 to 23. The Lord says, But behold, some survivors will be left in it, that's Jerusalem, sons and daughters who will be brought out. And behold, when they come out to you, Ezekiel was in Babylon already, and you see their ways and their deeds, you'll be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem. For all that I have brought upon it, verse 23, you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. What is he saying? Why is God sending these things on Israel and on Jerusalem? They've rebelled against him. They will not worship him as he deserves. And so this all of these awful things are going to come, judgment, sword, famine, and beast. And do you see God kind of arguing with Ezekiel a little bit? You can hear Ezekiel thinking, isn't this too much? Isn't this too harsh? And God says to Ezekiel, wait till you meet these people. Wait till you meet these people. Wait till you see how they live. And you'll think, oh, I get it. I see why God brought his judgment. They deserved it over and over and over again. So what are we supposed to do with the reality that John in Revelation here is borrowing from Ezekiel? The Ezekiel text shows us what's the meaning of these horses going out? What's the meaning of these forces going out? It's judgment. It's judgment on the earth. Remember we saw that the living creatures are the ones calling for these horses? Do you remember that? What, do you remember what the living creatures were covered with? eyes, which means they see God and his holiness and his beauty and what he's worthy of, 
And I think it also means they see the rebellious human world that will not give God the worship he deserves. And that's why they say, send the horses. It's judgment for refusal to worship. This is why I say suffering is speaking. Global suffering is speaking. It's telling us, the human race, something very important. What is it telling us as we feel the pain of brokenness? It's telling us the reason this is here is because you have rebelled against a holy God. We have not worshiped him. We have not submitted to him. We have not turned to him. So in the sting of suffering, we face the knowledge of the wrath that we deserve and that is coming in some way and that will come in fullness. So if you wanted to summarize the message of suffering, what is it in one word? How about this? Repent. Repent. Turn away from your idolatry from your breaking God's law, from your worshiping of all sorts of counterfeits, turn away because we deserve judgment. This is tricky a little bit, right? Do you wanna tell somebody whose fire burned down in, uh, in the forest fires of the West Coast that God hates them and is judging them by burning their house down? Is that the first thing you wanna say? I don't think so. You shouldn't say that. Uh, that's not the right way to handle this. But on the big picture, and that's what John is showing us, right? The big picture, the earth. Can we say that the reason we face pestilence, the reason where our governments are broken, the reason there's no peace, the reason there's unrest, the reason there's cosmic death is because of our corporate shared rebellion? Can we say that? Absolutely, we can say that. That's what this text is saying. And so even in the midst of fires, or whatever else, we are to hear, hey, how much judgment does our state deserve today? How much judgment does our country deserve today? How much judgment does every country in the world deserve today? In the global suffering, we get just a, a message, you should repent. This is for your refusal to worship, this is for your sin. So listen, the governments of the world are probably not listening to my sermon this morning. <laughs> um, it's not a large number. But for those of us who are listening, what's a response to this? We've seen Jesus is in control and we should expect suffering. And one thing it should do in our hearts is cause us to what? To repent. And not only so, but to share the message with others, whoever's listening, that they need to repent, that they need to trust Christ. Suffering speaks. Third point, suffering is a tool. Suffering is a tool. Look at verse, Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they, born, they had borne. What a vision. There's an altar there signifying the atoning for sin. And there's God's people there so, so close to the Lord, right there under the altar. And and. What has happened to them? They were slain. They were murdered. Why? Did you see? For the witness they had given about Jesus and his word. This is a unique kind of suffering here that Christians endure, and it's called persecution in the name of Jesus. It's the harsh treatment of God's people that comes specifically for their loyalty to Jesus, their fealty to who he is and what he's done, and their 
proclamation of his truth to the world. And it's a guarantee that the more faithful you are in doing this, the more surely at some point you will be persecuted for it. Obviously, just like the the horses and the seals, in some place the persecution is awful, people are actually murdered. In other places, your friend might not wanna talk to you anymore or you might lose your job. But nonetheless, there's a price for being loyal to the message of Christ and his gospel. And isn't history, past and present, full of this? It's full of it. More Christians have died in, the recent, in, in recent moments than all of uh, church history put together. It's everywhere. Look at what they say, verse 10. These saints under the altar cry out with a loud voice. This is so amazing. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Look at how they relate to God. Now, again, what happened to them? Do you remember for their faith? They were killed. What's that moment like? To lose everything for the faith. I mean, would you, would you do it? Have you ever wondered if you would do it? If, you would, if they, if they held, held the gun to your head and said, deny Christ, deny his cross, deny that he's Lord, do it. What would you do? What would you say? You'd, you'd think of your life. You'd think of your family. Would you do it? That's what these people went through It's so difficult. Sometimes when we suffer, we complain. Anybody out there? Am I the only one? Sometimes when we suffer, we complain. Look at these saints who have died for the faith. What do they say about God? What do they call him? Sovereign Lord. What do they mean? What's sovereign mean? Totally in control. Do they think of their death for their faith as an accident? God looked away. He was taking a nap. Oh no, what happened there? If only I had been there. Is that their attitude towards this? No, he's completely and totally in control even of their martyrdom. They call him holy and true. You know what holy means? It means you were worth suffering for. You were worth suffering for. You know what true means? It means you're faithful. You never let me down. You never let me down. They give God so much glory here, but what do they ask for in verse 10? It's really important. How long are you going to let the world do this to your people? How long? My friends in India ask that. Christians in Nigeria are asking that. Christians in China are asking that. If you love us, if you're our king, how long are you going to let the world do this to us? We may ask that more and more in the future. How long? Now, do these people want revenge? Sort of. Were they supposed to get revenge? I think this is important to mention here. Look at what Jesus said in the context of suffering. Luke chapter 6, 27 to 29. Luke 6, 27 to 29. Look what Jesus said. But I say to you who hear, love your, y'all tell me, because you won't believe me otherwise. Enemies. Do good To who? Those who hate you. Bless those who what? Curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I wonder if God's people are going to remember this through polemical, political times. Did you forget 
this call from your Lord that this is what it means to endure faithfully through tribulation. It's to love your enemies. It's to bless them. I want to see Christians on each side of the political aisle try this on who they see as their political enemies. It's like the command we think we're able to break and the Lord won't care. It doesn't mean don't tell the truth, but it means when you're, it, it means we bless. It means we do good. It means we pray. So that's a reality we need to remember. But they do pray for justice before the throne, don't they? They pray for justice. And what's God's response to them? You see this in verse 11. They were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I love how God responds here. He gives them the white robe. Remember what that stands for? We've seen this many, many times. The white robe signifies um, being saved by the gospel. The white robe is having the blood of Jesus pay for all your sins. It's having his righteousness given to you as a gift. It's belonging to him and have the light, having the life that looks like you belong to him. It's being wrapped in the gospel. And look at where, look where God wants his people to look. I mean, was this written for the saints who are already in heaven under the altar? Who's this for? It's for the people in the seven churches under tribulation. It's for you. It's for me. What does God tell his people who are persecuted to rest in? Go remember the gospel again, that Jesus died for you. Go remember that you didn't deserve it, but he loved you. Go remember that you're his. Rest in him. Also, rest in God's sovereign timing over suffering. These next words are incredible. They were, told to, they were given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until what? The number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed. When we think of martyrdom happening to God's people, it's not like God's trying to hold it back and, oh no, I missed one there, I missed one there. Oh no, do you see what this text says? He knows exactly how many of his people are to be killed for him. It's part of his plan. Does that mean he hates them? No, it's the opposite. He loves them dearly. He gave his son for them. He's going to bring them to himself. But here's what you need to see. When I say suffering is a tool, what I'm saying is this text shows us God saves his people through suffering. He uses it for our good in our lives. These martyrs, they proclaim the gospel. Guess what happened when they proclaimed the gospel? Some people believed it. That's what happened. Through suffering, God saves people. Let's listen to what Peter says about these things. This idea that suffering is a tool that Jesus uses to save and refine his people. Look at 2 Peter 3, 8. Look what Peter says there. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness that promises his return. But Peter says, his, he's patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why does God wait? Why does Jesus wait to come back? 
more people need to be saved. And some of you, you know this very well. If Jesus had come back 10 years ago, you would have gone to hell. But now because he waited, you won't. Are you glad he waited? And does Jesus use suffering to lead to the conversion of his people? A friend of mine is a missiologist, and he has studied how the church is growing through uh, the Syrian crisis and all the exiles going this place and that. And in Greece especially, churches have been exploding, and the gospel has reached people it never would have reached without the riding of the white horse and the red horse and the black horse. Jesus uses suffering to save his people. Not only that, look at 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7. In this you rejoice now for a little while, if, how long? Necessary. Do you see that word? Necessary. What's necessary mean? It needs to happen for you. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we usually don't grow in our godly character by winning the lottery or by having everything go easy. You know what happened to me if all my dreams came true instantly and everything went easy? I would be a prideful, cocky, not a nice person. It's actually hard times that build character, isn't it? And Jesus uses our suffering to humble us, to show us our need for him, to wean our hearts from this world onto him and the next life. Hey, in this passage on suffering, right, it's, it's a passage on suffering. We, we could probably stop and say, hasn't God been really kind to us too? I mean, we have air conditioning right now. We have chairs. Uh, are all of you going to eat lunch today? You know, God's kind, right? There's so many wonderful things he puts in our lives all over here, there, and everywhere. But he's going to use suffering to save his people. And he's going to use suffering to refine his people. This is what we've seen so far. Suffering is disappointing. To be faithful in it, we need to expect it and know that Jesus is in control. Second, suffering is speaking. The world deserves judgment and needs to repent. Third, suffering is a tool. Jesus uses suffering to save and refine his people. Fourth, suffering will mature. Now, what did the saints pray for in the last seal? We want justice, right? Vindicate us. Come, how long? Guess what God's gonna do in the very next seal? He is going to answer their prayers. Watch this. 12 to 14. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain island was removed from its place. This is just full of Old Testament imagery on the day of the Lord and it all leads to the undoing of creation. It's falling apart. And what an image. You think of a tree blowing in the wind and all its fruit falling and that happening to stars. It's all being undone. Why? Look what we see in verses 15 to 17. 
Now we know we shouldn't read this too literally because if the verses of 12 to 14 happen before the verses of 15 to 17, we wonder where the people in verses 15 to 17 will stand as they say these things. But we're supposed to see the picture, the principle. God is going to come in judgment and it will overwhelmingly undo creation and look at the response of the people on earth. Verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, what? Fall on us. How many of you, um, you know, if you were like, what's your top three fears? Some of you would be like, well, uh, eaten by a shark while I surf, or uh, public speaking, tell me about it. Or um, how about being underneath an avalanche? Is that on the list of like, oh. What is it that could be so bad where you would be begging and pleading for an avalanche? Cover me with the fallen mountain so I can be stuck there in the darkness. What could be so awful? that you would want that. And here it is. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. That's why I say suffering will mature. You think they're suffering now? (laughs) Not really. Wait till Jesus comes back. Wait till all the wrath that has been stored up by all the rebellious peoples, communities, and nations, wait till it's all reached enough and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ say, no more. And they come in their fury. Is there anything more terrifying? And he says, hide us from the face of him. You know, if you're a Christian, imagine not being a Christian and the eyes of the holy God targeting you and seeing through all your excuses not to love him and worship him and trust in him and seeing all your motives and what you've done, past, present, future, seeing all your thoughts, what you thought about those people, hearing all your words and what you said about all those people and bringing it, everything you deserve right on you right there. Please do give me the avalanche. I don't wanna face him. And so you see the issue. This is God's wrath on all idolaters, all who have not worshiped the Father through Jesus Christ. The issue is not race, not class, not status, not gender, not riches. It's, it's nothing like that. The issue purely is your heart towards God through Jesus Christ. Are you right with him? Suffering will mature. All these smaller sufferings just remind us of the reality of the tidal wave that's coming. What are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? What do we do with nearly anything, Fount of Life? Look to the gospel. Look to the gospel. If you're not a Christian, be ready for that day. Trust in what Jesus has done. Trust his life, his death, his resurrection. And that takes us to our fifth point, suffering will end. We're going to cheat a little bit here and go into Revelation chapter 7. And I think this is still an echo of the sixth seal. But I want to read to you Revelation 7, verses 13 to 17. 
Look what we see here. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, listen carefully there before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they'll hunger no more. They'll thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You know what this is? It's the end of suffering. For those who, know, who, for those who don't know Christ, this life is as good as it's ever going to get. For those who do know Christ, this life is as awful as it's ever going to get. And one day our suffering will end. We saw it in 7, 13 to 14. These are people that have come through the tribulation. These are all God's people coming through the tribulation. And they've made it because they've trusted in Jesus. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Make sure you have that white robe. How do you get it? You trust the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died for your sins. And he took the wrath of God in your place. Look at Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's good news. If you trust Jesus and what he's done, God will call you righteous. Not because of your own righteousness, but because there's a trade that has been made. Jesus took your sin and gave you his perfection and it's free, given as a gift through faith in him, trust yourself to Jesus that he would pay for your sins, that you would come to God through him. You'll be given the robe, you'll make it through, and look what God will do. God himself will wipe every tear from your eye. What a picture. Have you ever wiped a tear from someone's eye before? It's kind of an intimate thing, right? You, you know they're suffering. It's usually a family relationship when this happens, or maybe a close friend where somebody's hurting and weeping and there's a tear and, and you're actually there and you actually wipe their face, this intimate comfort and care. Can you imagine God wiping away your tears? Such compassion, such love. Look at the promise. Jesus will end your suffering. He will end your suffering. Suffering will end. Why? Because suffering has been undone. And here's where we wrap it all up. I want to remember how this passage in Revelation began. There's this question in Revelation 5. Who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to be in charge of human history and take it where it's supposed to go? And there was one, we saw him, he's the lion, he's the lamb. Remember Revelation 5 verse 9. They sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals. Why especially is Jesus worthy? For you were slain. Who suffered first? Who suffered most? Jesus. You know, every worldview has to deal with the reality of suffering. 
doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a Buddhist or whatever you are. You have to, you have to deal with the reality of pain and suffering. And to me, a lot of these answers that the different worldviews give are just totally unsatisfying. There's, there's not really a way out. But when we see Jesus, oh, isn't it different to have a God who actually has suffered and who went through suffering to undo it? In fact, the reason he can control human history and reign over suffering now and end it later is because he, was con- he conquered through suffering. He suffered and beat it. He has the keys to sin and death. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And he holds it all in his hands. He ransomed people for himself. If you're, if you're a Christian and you're suffering, I want to tell you something right now. God may discipline us with it, right? But that's like a loving father working for good in our lives. You're not suffering because of his wrath. That wrath is gone. It's paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. He's using it as a tool for your good and for his glory. And we can know as Jesus suffered, so do we. And as Jesus rose, guess what? So will we. Suffering will end because in Jesus, suffering has been undone. That's Revelation 6. Six seals of suffering. And what it's meant to do is give us the proper perspective so that we can be faithful through it. Just remember, suffering's disappointing, but it's to be what? Expected. And you can make it through because who's in control? Jesus is. Second, suffering speaks. What's it say to the world? We need to repent. Things are broken because we've refused to worship. Let's turn to our God through Jesus Christ. Third, suffering is a tool. God uses it to save and sanctify his people. Fourth, suffering will mature. There's gonna be a day that comes, the suffering of sufferings, when, G- when God returns in judgment. Make sure you're ready. Trust the gospel because suffering will end for God's people because suffering has been undone in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Church, let's hold together through suffering and let's be faithful to our Lord because he will bring us through. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it hurts the suffering of our lives, of our world, of our nation. Lord, help us to love our neighbor as best we can in all these ways. But Lord, also get us ready to know that suffering does and will happen, but we can trust that you're in control, that you hold the reins of the horses um, because you were trampled by the horses and you conquered you came out on top. Let us trust you. Let us look to you. Let us rely on you and hope in the reality that you're with us and one day our suffering will end and we'll enjoy bliss with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Great to be with you, Fountain of Life. Thanks for being here. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.